0: (laughs) there's nothing like feeling alienated when you're talking (laughs) there's a a wonderful theme in creation stories that were dreamed into existence and uh, in one aboriginal way of saying it uh, great spirit great spirit dreams us and all of material reality into existence The understanding being that through our own personal intent we join great spirit in co-dreaming. In fact, we are already doing it. The trick is to become aware, mindful of this intent. That our intention, our wanting and our not wanting, is another way of putting it, is creating this whole experience, this whole reality. When we're not aware of it, in other words, when we're identified inside it, there's trouble. This is the story of the man who had all his wishes granted. There was once a man who wandered everywhere until, exhausted in his search for happiness, he sat under a tree one day. Unknown to him, he had found a wish-fulfilling tree under which whatever wish you have is granted he enjoyed the shade rested and soon felt restored from his travels he thought this is a lovely spot if only I had a small house here then I'd be happy you all know about if only mind right no sooner had the thought taken form in his mind than an attractive little cottage appeared before him then the man thought how wonderful now if only I had a wife with whom to share my joy instantly a lovely woman appeared before him and smiled beguilingly Wow, said the man and then he thought if I just had some delicious food to eat my joy would then be complete and of course without a moment's delay a large serving cart manifested laden with carefully prepared dishes delicate sauces, exquisite pastries the man began to eat but midway through the meal he began to wish he had someone to serve him (laughs) the butler of course immediately appeared The man ate his fill and then then leaned back against the tree contentedly. Only then did he begin to wonder, What is going on here? (laughs) Everything I've thought of appears in front of me. First the house, then the woman, the food, even the butler. There must be some kind of demon living in this tree. And sure enough, from out of nowhere, (laughs) emerged a demon who stood in front of him. Oh my heaven, he's going to eat me, the man cried out. And that is just what the demon did. (laughs) So this is a description of our meditation, don't you think? Or if not, just how this world gets created, the mind and the play of consciousness, just creating these endless stories, dramas, possibilities, and we follow them, we follow them. Our intent, our wants, our fears create this world and when we're not (coughs) mindful of them, we get lost in it. The Buddha's teachings are that with awareness, when we become mindful of what's going on, the very nature of that awareness relaxes us open, relaxes us back to the very source, to being one with great spirit, if you will. So tonight I'd like to explore some the power of realizing what our intent is. And even more fully said, the power of opening to our deepest aspiration, the deepest level of aspiration. When I was out at Spirit Rock last fall, I was in an interview with a student who said, you know, I'm so afraid of talking even to one person, doesn't it get you nervous speaking in front of groups? And I said, sometimes, and it depends, she said, well, what do you do? How do you deal with if you get all nervous and uncomfortable? And what I described to her, and just to share with you, is that always, before starting to speak, I kind of ask myself that question, you know, what is it that really matters right now? In some form. I have different versions of the question. But what matters? You know, what, what do I really care about? What is my aspiration or my wish or my prayer? And sometimes I can't get in touch with a whole lot. You know, it's kind of, if I'm nervous, there's kind of a flurry. But there's something very powerful about just even the inquiry begins to, something in my awareness drops to a place where I'm more aligned with what's real. I'm more connected with where my heart is really wakeful. What we find often when we say, Well, what do I really want, is that at any given moment what we want might not be so um, (laughs) noble-sounding. It might not always be I want liberation and freedom and everyone to be free of suffering. It might be that right now I want relief from this pain. Do you know what I mean? We have different layers. And it's part of being alive that we have layers of intention, layers of wanting. So the practice of becoming aware of intention is to start where we are. To start by settling in and saying, what's true? What am I wanting right this moment? And much like the forever living metaphor of the onion that's being peeled, these layers with the light of awareness begin to peel off. But what do I want? The layers of first wanting to get rid of this or more of that begins to drop down deeper and deeper and deeper. It's my sense that our deepest longing, which we can describe in many ways, has something to do with connectedness and belonging always. We might describe that as freedom, because in, when we're free, we're naturally a part of everything. We might describe it as happiness, because when we feel connected and free we feel happy. There's many associative terms, and it really doesn't matter so much which we use, but that we connect with what feels alive for us. So I'd like to invite you for a moment just to explore what does it mean to you to feel belonging in this moment, closing your eyes and just checking in. What does it take to feel a sense of belonging in this moment? What's it like? I ask you to continue to explore what it means to you to belong to this body and this breath, to this earth, to this moment. What we find is that the pathway to arriving is by paying attention. And what we discover we're paying attention to is all the wanting and all the fearing that pull us away from the moment. Now it's interesting that, and it's a misunderstanding that Buddhism and the Buddha say that wanting and not wanting are bad. To say that wanting is bad or wrong is like saying that life is wrong. You know the line, the great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. Have you met such a one? Really. Taking form, just the nature of taking form, is a preference. This is an article, A Matter of Some Importance, that came out in the Washington Post a few weeks ago. You're reading this because some 15 billion years ago, when the cosmos was created in the Big Bang, something went subtly askew. Presumably the Big Bang produced equal amounts of matter and antimatter, so, when a matter particle met its antimatter counterpart, each should have annihilated the other in a flash of light, producing a universe that was all shine and no substance. As you've probably noticed, that didn't happen. By about one part in a billion, creation expressed a preference for matter over antimatter. <laughs> and voila, here we are. <laughs> When you consider it, wanting, much like its cosmic um, expression and the force of gravity, is really the attraction that coheres. It creates life forms. Our bodies would just scatter to the winds, as would our families and our Earth and the galaxies were there no force of being drawn together. So wanting is equivalent to taking form, taking life. And the force of wanting when contorted, as it gets, naturally, creates suffering. So let's look a little more closely on how this natural force of the universe, this kind of preference of life to take a shape, and then preference of these life forms to come together, and everything else after that, that leads to us being here, how it turns into suffering. desire is not the cause of suffering. It's the way our being identifies and organizes and wraps around the desire, the grasping that arises out of it. Now an image that I find useful in kind of exploring this is that of entering this earth, this life, this time and space in a spacesuit. That all beings, as we take shape here, kind of take shape or emerge in, with a spacesuit. And the spacesuit is all our conditioning towards pleasure and away from pain. It's all the way we're organized to try to navigate an environment that's challenging. So we arrive in the spacesuit to do all that. And it's necessary and limiting if we think we're our spacesuit, which we go around thinking a whole lot. This is John O'Donohue. He writes, When you forget or repress the truth and depth of your invisible belonging and decide to belong to some system, person, or project, you lose yourself and wander more and more away from where your heart wants to go. Your hunger becomes more intense and your life becomes more forsaken. Our realities are created by what we want and if our wanting latches on to anything then we become small, we become contorted. Most of you know the um, kind of metaphor if you're going cross-country and you need to pee you're going to keep looking for gas stations and if you need food you're going to look for restaurants and what we look for and the way we maneuver is incredibly and fully filtered by what we want we can see it at retreat if we want a certain meditative state everything's being compared against that if we want people to think about us in a certain way such as in walking meditation if we're walking but a part of our attention is how are others perceiving me am I walking in a really mindful slow yogi way do I look graceful then that totally affects how much we can belong to the next step and the next. Our wanting and our fearing molds our reality. This is um, an illustration of this phenomenon and its multitude of responses to the one inquiry, all these different responses to the very well-known inquiry, why did the chicken cross the road? (laughs) Einstein writes, whether the chicken crossed the road or the road moved beneath the chicken depends on your frame of reference. The Buddha, asking this question, denies your own chicken nature. (laughs) Captain James T. Kirk, to boldly go where no chicken has gone before. Hippocrates, because of an excess of phlegm in its pancreas. (laughs) Moses, and God came down from the heavens and he said unto the chicken, Thou shalt cross the road, and the chicken crossed the road, and there was much rejoicing. (laughs) I'll just read you a few more. (laughs) This one I love. Fox Mulder. (laughs) You saw it cross the road with your own eyes. How many more chickens have to cross the road before you believe it? (laughs) (laughs) Jerry Seinfeld. Why does anyone cross the road? I mean, why doesn't anyone ever think to ask what the heck was this chicken doing walking all over the place anyway? And then Bill Gates. I've just released... The new Chicken Office 2000, which will not only cross roads, but will lay eggs, follow your important documents, and balance your checkbook." (laughs) And I think you get the idea. (laughs) That when we have our frame of reference, we filter the world through it. And it very much narrows things, which excludes the whole. So it's interesting to sense in this retreat where you've gotten most Identified with your spacesuit, where wanting or fearing has become strong enough that your sense of who you are is completely molded by that experience. You might reflect today, yesterday, the day before, whether in the food line there was a sense of wanting or fearing that food would be gone, and then that shrinkage of the sense of self and the solidifying or whether coming towards interview. Interviews, we just write them down and do them as if they're nothing, but there's a lot of drama that goes around approaching an interview. I know. And sometimes you can forget it if you're on the other side, but it's really true. There's a lot of trippiness that can be about, you know, what am I going to say, and how, you know, is this going to be the best question, and how to make most use of the time, and on and on. And how that ends up making us feel smaller than we might feel. When there's strong pleasantness or unpleasantness our tendencies to try to control and make it different. And we do it in two main ways around wanting. One, as I mentioned, we grasp onto too narrow an object. We t- take this deep sense of wanting and it gets attached. If we feel a sense of emptiness, to feel more full we'll latch onto food or if there's a sense of fearfulness, maybe, to productivity and being busy, or for lonely, to sexual fantasy, and on and on. We, we narrow the spectrum. Saturday Night Live, they write in uh, Deep Thoughts, it's funny that pirates were always going around searching for treasure, and they never realized that the real treasure was the fond memories they were creating. <laughs> beware when you hear deep thoughts. <laughs> One of my um, most memorable experiences of discovering the narrow lens of wanting, how that was creating suffering, was when I was living in an ashram in my twenties. And a lot of ashram life and a lot of this spiritual group circled around the spiritual teacher. and. For mo- many of us, our relationship with this teacher mattered a whole lot. And how he saw us and related to us really could either make us feel like we were wonderful or awful. And um, I was a committed student, but not uncritical. So at one point I, I questioned something, and very publicly he lashed out at me. And he lashed out quite um, crudely and rudely, it was, it was pretty abusive probably the most overt abuse I'd ever experienced, and it was very, very public, so it was shaming. And it was a devastating experience, because either I continued to believe him as a source of my okayness, in which case I was totally damaged goods, or I stopped focusing my wanting on such a narrow source. My being okay could, you know, had a Withdraw from him being the source of it. So it was. Um, I was forced, because of the betrayal, to open my wanting to a deeper level, which was the wanting to feel self-trust. The way Galway Canell puts it is a self-blessing. That everything blooms from self-blessing or blossoms from self-blessing, and that was that became my aspiration. That I, in some way, really trust that the divine was within. It wouldn't have happened so quickly if I hadn't been betrayed. And I don't look at it like a victim that I was betrayed. Anytime we put our trust and our wanting and the source of our happiness on something, like a person, like things being a certain way, we will be betrayed because everything changes. Renunciation doesn't mean we have to let go of anything it's accepting that it all changes. So we don't have to renounce wanting, just the narrowness where our wanting grasps onto some thing. Ramakrishna, O longing mind, dwell within the depth of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Do not confine your innate infinity within the mansions of finitude. Your naked awareness alone, O mind, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. We think we long for something, and what we long for is really the wakefulness, the compassion, the boundlessness of our own nature. It's not the wanting that's wrong. So one way that we cause suffering is to make the wanting narrow. A second way is to deny that the wanting is there. And that's no small deal. We're brought up in a culture where wanting and needing and hunger and, hold, you know, it's needy. It makes us vulnerable. And it's often shamed. So every one of us has ways of covering the secret... <coughs> longing and wanting and graspiness of our being. We all want. And because it's embarrassing, we've figured out our own strategies for disguising it. Garrison Keillor. My ancestors were Puritans from England. They arrived here in 1648 in the hope of finding greater restrictions than were permissible under English law at that time. (laughs) not just the Buddhists, although the Buddhists, by saying that you know, craving causes desire, which causes suffering, which it can. I mean, when you're wanting and it becomes small and fixated, there is suffering. But by then, in some way, making that mean that wanting is bad turns us all bad. So there's a sense as a spiritual seeker that you're supposed to get rid of desire and get rid of aversion. That makes us a shame-based path if we subscribe in that way. It's not the wanting, it's the identification that makes it small. So one way we get in trouble is by making it too narrow. The other, by pushing away wanting. One of the things I find for myself is that I one of my strongest wantings is to be healthy and energetic, and I mentioned a couple nights ago that I've had a lot of chronic fatigue. And for a while I would give myself this little coaching dharma talk, mini-dharma talk, where I'd find myself really wanting to feel energetic and so on, and I'd say, now don't attach your sense of well-being to just, you know, and that would be the kind of thing I'd do. And then I'd feel worse. I would feel ashamed that I wasn't spiritually together because there I was wanting, wanting to feel different, and then depressed because I wasn't getting what I wanted. What I found is much more freeing. Really, is to recognize, ah, okay, really strong wanting, and and say it in a, in a real yes, wanting. You know, not like something's wrong with me for wanting, but okay, wanting, strong wanting and just open to it, include it, in a very full, wholehearted way. One of my greatest trainings in working with wanting mind, I've mentioned to some of you that uh, Joseph Goldstein says, wanting mind, wanting, to just not take it so seriously and personally, it's just happening, and it's part of this world's creation, was going to a retreat, probably my first or second week-long Buddhist retreat, and I had just gotten involved with somebody, so I went there, and I was unsure of the way the relationship was going to go. And I really wanted it to work, and I was obsessing like crazy about this relationship, and obsessing and fantasizing. And it was sexual, and it was emotional, and I was really in it. And um, so at first, I, you know, I knew how to, I knew the supposed procedures. I said wanting, and I went back to my breath or wanting, and I tried to feel into it, and so on. But it went on and on. It went on for two days, four days, and finally I realized, oh my God, this will be my retreat. The whole thing will be me just obsessing, having fantasies. And that violated my sense of okay spiritual person, totally. <laughs> so, I mean, that was not okay. So, so I went into an interview and I said, you know, I'm naming it, I'm feeling it, and, and, and the person that was, I think it was Carol Wilson, said, and it sounds like you're judging it like crazy." And I was. And she said, well, just watch that. Look what you're adding on, all this um, judgment to wanting mine. So I started paying attention and realized the amount of shame that was wrapped around being hooked in wanting. So much shame. And when I saw that, there was a lot of compassion, because that's suffering. I mean, as soon as you can really, really sense how much you've bound something up with shame, it's easier to let go. And then I practiced opening, genuinely opening, to wanting. Like saying yes and letting it be as big as it wanted to be. And I'm talking about physical, sexual, emotional, just really letting it roar through. It was amazing because when I really said yes to it, the story dropped away. Would he or wouldn't he, would we or wouldn't we. That—that that just And it was just a lot of energy moving through until I realized that the wanting was the wanting for connectedness. It was that explosion, that ecstatic explosion of just feeling this cosmic connectedness with everything. And my body and mind and being was really alive with it. In fact, I'll never forget the walks I took that retreat, because I'd go outside and feel like I was in love, erotically, sensually, spiritually, with the trees and the grass and the chickadees. Some of you know at IMS the chickadees land in your hands. I was having this kind of incredible cosmic affair with the chickadees. It was in love with life. Let me read you something. This is um, D.H. Lawrence. When we get out of the glass bottles of our ego and when we escape like squirrels turning in the cages of our personality and get into the forest again, we will shiver with cold and fright, but things will happen to us so that we don't know ourselves. Cool, unlying life will rush in, and passion will make our bodies taut with power. We will stamp our feet with new power, and old things will fall down, We shall laugh and institutions will curl up like burnt paper. Isn't that great? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Opening and really experiencing wanting. It doesn't mean to be identified and acting out of wanting and aversion. It means opening to the direct and immediate experience when we act out If I acted out in the sense of, you know, because I want to be healthy, I spent my time obsessing about health projects and was constantly doing everything I could, you know, just losing myself and trying to feel different, I'd be losing my life. Rita Rudner writes, my grandmother was a very tough woman. She buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. (laughs) Now, I have to say that that doesn't totally fit in, but I really liked it. (laughs) Anyway. The point is to realize there's as much delusion and suffering from pushing away wanting as there is from grasping out of wanting. Besides, fighting longing is really impossible because it's life. It's the aliveness in us. It's impossible and it's depressing because to fight longing means you have to depress it. We have been raised to fear the yes within ourselves, our deepest cravings. And the fear of our deepest cravings keeps them suspect, keeps us docile and loyal and obedient, and leads us to settle for or accept many facets of our own oppression. Now this is Terry Tempest Williams. But what kind of impoverishment is this to withhold emotion, to restrain our passionate nature in the face of a generous life, just to appease our fears? A man or woman whose mind reigns in the heart when the body sings desperately for connection can only expect more isolation and greater ecological disease. The two herons who flew over me have now landed downriver, I do not believe they are fearful of love. I do not believe their decisions are based on a terror of loss. They are not docile, loyal, or obedient. They are engaged in a rich, biological context, completely present. They are feathered Buddhas casting blue shadows on the snow, fishing on the shortest day of the year. so the pathway home moving from longing to belonging begins with being with longing saying yes to what is you'll remember the Tibetans describing with the animal headed deities at the gate to sacred space well as many of those deities were passionate deities as wrathful deities they both were there The Tibetans describe it that the lotus of awakening blooms from the mud banks of passion. When I say passion, I mean longing and wanting and what the essence energy of that longing and wanting is. So our path is to awaken mindfully through these deities, through these passions. Consider the word desire for a moment. Checking out its roots. Desiderare to cease to see sense of absence and the desire to seek and find the absent one. On a similar vein, decidus, away from a star, when in a state of desire you are away from your star, from the source of your being. The very nature of desire implies that we intuit where we're from. It's as if we're Disconnected from the source, but we intuit it, so we desire to return, to come back home again. In most languages, the root of the word home and divine are the same this coming back to belonging. So, desire is the voice of severed belonging. And for me, that's a useful understanding. At any moment of, of suffering where the desire starts grasping there's just to know that, that what's happening is there's this longing to belong Evelyn Underhill writes nothing in all nature is so lovely and so vigorous so perfectly at home in its environment as a fish in the sea its surroundings give to it a beauty, quality and power which are not its own We take it out, and at once a poor, limp, dull thing fit for nothing is gasping away its life. So the soul, sunk in God, living the life of prayer is supported, filled, transformed in beauty by a vitality and power which are not its own. Whether we consider our path as awakening into God or into Buddha nature, It's coming back into wholeness, back to our original, true essence, coming back into belonging. So there's a wisdom to desire. The longing for God comes out of an intuition that God exists. The longing for love. You can't long for love unless there's a place in you that knows about love. You understand? When we practice mindfulness, we're practicing this kind of being with, recognizing and feeling fully what's here, which often presents as wanting mind. And because our conditioning is to immediately go into a reactive grasping, or denying it, it takes a real intentionality. I'll tell you a a story, and this is a story about a client that's... um, that always really strikes me, because it's kind of remarkable. And this is a woman who would be kind of the epitome of a person who did not allow herself to want. I mean, she lived a very, very disciplined, contained, anxious, confined lifestyle, and was very depressed. Uh, And she was coming to therapy, and at the end of the session she said, well, I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do tonight. Either I'm going to go get a movie, or go to this um, lecture that's supposed to be about some spiritual thing. What do you think I should do? And I said, well, what would your intention be? And she said, well, if I was going to rent a movie, it would be just kind of relax and have a good time. And if I'm going to the spiritual um, lecture, it would be to improve myself. So, of course, I told her to go get a movie. (laughs) Um, And she did. And she got a movie that was a romance And as it turns out, she saw the movie not once, but probably about 18 times because she fell in love with the lead. Really. She fell in love with the lead. I mean, she really fell in love with him in her way. (laughs) And she was very excited about it because it was the first time she had felt passion and excitement in years and years and years. So that became a center place in our therapy and in her meditation was to keep saying yes and there was a lot of fear. It was very dangerous but she just kept going. She kept watching the movie and feeling the feelings and so on. (laughs) After a while... After, and she did stop watching the movie. She actually got in a, you know, a light but real relationship with somebody for the first time in many years and continued having a lot of fear and a lot of excitement and so on. But it, was, it opened Pandora's box in a wonderful way. Her practice really was to feel fully into the intensity and know that it was not going to be under control which is what makes it so hard. These lives aren't under control. Our rage isn't under control. Our passion's not under control. John O'Donohue writes how humans try to control the presence of the divine. We try to stake it down in ways so that we can manage the experience. Then he writes, truth is, there's nothing as wild in the universe as the presence of the divine the beautiful, seamless, lyrical wilderness, wildness of the earth itself is that essence of the divine. And the natural, native wildness within us. What we must ask ourselves is what have we done with that wildness? What have we done with that wildness? The reason people find so little sense of the divine is that they're defended against longing and they've lost the sense of their own wildness. Strong words, these. So one way that we begin to reconnect with this wildness and this wisdom and this love, this real belonging to this world, is by agreeing to the wanting mind, not being lost, but opening to it fully. Another, which is a more intentional process is the act of listening and expression which is prayer listening to longing and expressing longing mindfully and that's prayer prayer is a pathway to dropping from whatever level of wanting our self-sense is coagulated around into the longing to belong that brings us back to wholeness And it's a practice, like any other practice. Metta is an example. With metta we practice extending care, allowing ourselves to receive care. We might not be feeling it at the moment, but in the process of extending and receiving, we reconnect with what's already always been there, which is our natural and loving hearts. Similarly, when we pray to the Beloved, and we all have our shapes and forms and senses of what that means, are we pray for some experience? Who we're praying to and what we're praying for is really our own essence. What do we pray for? We pray for wakefulness, we pray for open-heartedness, we pray for wisdom. It's who we are that we're praying for. When we invoke our sense of the Beloved, Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, Buddha, Christ, Mary, whatever. When we invoke some sense, some embodiment, it's an embodiment really of our own highest wisdom, of our own loving heart. I grew up Unitarian and the Unitarians um, have a, a mistrust sometimes of the notion of praying to some holy being out there, up there. In fact, they addressed prayers to whom it may concern. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to tell you also, this church is so liberal that there was this teaching of the mosaic tablets on which are inscribed the ten suggestions. (laughs) So I was—I grew up in LRY, liberal religious youth, which is, you know, a number of people have. How many? How many Unitarians here? Let's see. <laughs> Where there's this sense of, um, you know, a, a healthy skepticism, but that can extend to Buddhists around prayer because prayer seems dualistic, right? There can be a small self praying to the beloved out there, or praying for something that's not already here. That's duality. But what we find is we do live often many moments in a state of duality where we think we're a separate self and there's a world out there. And as John O'Donohue describes it so beautifully, prayer is the bridge from longing belonging. The bridge from duality to experiencing that oneness. What makes it a bridge is the sincerity we bring to it. So I found that in my early years practicing Buddhism, I didn't pray much. I mostly practiced um, more of the choiceless awareness of either concentrating on the breath or being with what presented. But more and more, especially in the last, oh, two or three years I realized that I'm in prayer a lot of the time, a lot of moments of the day. There's a sense of longing that's mindful and intentional. And the longing and I actually frame it, I articulate it as part of a practice. Usually the words are something like, may this too serve to awaken. But even voicing that, it's like a duality in the sense of it already does serve to awaken, but by naming it and being intentional it connects me more fully with the reality of what's happening. Lama Govinda, this is from Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism, describes how the beloved that we pray to, this beloved is an expression of those states of highest wisdom and harmony that have been realized in humanity and that are within us. Prayer and invocation penetrates from a merely intellectual and theoretical attitude to the direct awareness of reality. Such penetration and transformation is only possible through the compelling power of inner vision, whose primordial images or archetypes are the formative principles of our mind. Like seeds, they sink into the fertile soil of our subconsciousness in order to germinate, to grow, and to unfold their potentialities. I read you this because we began tonight talking about how we are co-dreaming with the creative element and that as we become more aware of it we awaken to the source we re-merge with we belong to that creative principle so prayer is a pathway this intentional invocation of what is to us the divine connects us with the divine that's always been within us. Suffering is severed belonging. We all experience it some. Every one of us, if we have a longing to belong, senses the separation that we're not quite resting or belonging to our star. It's the touching, the sense of connectedness and belonging that heals. And we know it when we walk in the woods and feel a sense of connectedness with the earth. A few people told me in the last couple of days of either lying on the earth or being with a tree or seeing something beautiful and then feeling just a dissolving, a letting go of that separateness. Or when we can hold or be held with each other. There's a dissolving of that separateness. During the first two decades of this century, a great number of babies under one year of age wasted away in hospitals and children's institutions and died from unknown causes. In some institutions, it was customary to enter the condition of all seriously sick infants as hopeless on the admission cards. Among the doctors who were confronted with infant mortality daily was Dr. Fritz Talbot of the Children's Clinic in some place I can't name. Dr. Talbot had uncommon success in dealing with sick children. For many years, as he made his rounds, he would be followed from ward to ward by groups of interns seeking new ways of handling children's diseases. One such intern told the following story Many times we would come across a child for whom everything had failed. For some reason, the child was hopelessly wasting away. When this would happen, Dr. Talbot would take the child's tart and scrawl some indecipherable prescription. In most of the cases, the magic formula took effect and the child began to prosper. My curiosity was aroused, and I wondered if the famous doctor had developed some new type of wonder drug. One day, after rounds, I returned to the ward and I tried to decipher Dr. Talbot's scrawl. I had no luck, and so I turned to the head nurse and asked her what the prescription was. "'Old Anna,' she said." and she pointed to a grandmotherly woman seated in a large rocker with a baby on her lap. (laughs) The nurse continued, Whenever we have a baby for whom everything we could do has failed, we turn the child over to old Anna. She has more success than all the doctors and nurses in this institution combined. One of my clients... uh, has been adopted, was adopted when she was a child, and is continuously dealing with the sense of what it means to be abandoned. And she had foster parents that has them, they're still alive, wonderful, wonderful people. And so she had the blessings of really entering into a wonderful family. But she still has this very core feeling that whenever she's at a party or this place or that place, she doesn't quite belong. There's Life is good and there's a lot of fun going on and there's many blessings, but in some way she will be rejected, she's not worthy. And it's been a lifelong experience. So the last time she was with me, we were kind of meditating together, and, and she was describing how it was so hard for her to trust that, you know, any real belonging, that there was any real love. So I said, well, what love do you trust? I mean, where is there something? And she said, the only place is with her children. In fact, she still talks about how when her oldest daughter was an infant, she looked into her eyes, and there was such a profound sense of intimacy with that child, and the sadness of knowing that she was never held by her biological mother and seen like that. But the connection with her children is very, very powerful. So I invited her just to reflect on that, on that sense of of connection with her children, and the sense of belonging. And she she meditated on it for some time. And then invited her to start letting all the places in her life where there wasn't so much belonging be held in that space of where she was connected there was a big enough and deep enough trust in the belonging with her children that it could be the open and warm space that other places of fear and vulnerability could be held in. Now she wouldn't have even known to long for belonging unless there was a taste of that connectedness. And that's true for each of us. Every one of us, deep in us, even if we feel very afraid or isolated, has a taste of what it means to belong, to feel connected and to feel love. So our challenge is how to rediscover the pathway to belonging. And for some that means more time in nature. I have one friend that describes it that that people are too scary, or have for a long time been too scary. So her way of establishing belonging really is in the natural world, with trees, with plants, with the grass. But that gradually, as she trusts in that more and rests in that more, she can let people in closer. Prayer to what we trust and love. Prayer to the beloved is a pathway back to that sense of communion. (laughs) Rather than grasping onto a thing, we invoke the very essence of what we long for and relax back into that essence. We become whole. Rumi puts it this way. This is how a human being can change. There's a little worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly he wakes up. Call it grace, whatever. Something wakes him and he's no longer a little worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard too. The fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. The grace is a glimpse, is a touch, of connectedness. And it can start in any moment that we're willing to connect with just this much. We're not belonging to something out there. Right now, if you explore your experience you can ask again, what does it mean to belong to just this moment? Go ahead and check in to this breath, to this moment, to this body explore just a little more and if you're not sitting up and you'd like to please do because we'll just end with a short meditation on belonging taking a few moments to relax back and sense what's true in your body, in your heart, in your mind. Saying yes and bowing to the experience of this moment. Discovering your belonging to this moment. Sensing your belonging to this body, this heart, belonging to the space and sounds, by simply connecting with what's true. Bringing to mind a person where you sense and trust the experience of belonging. sensing that being, imagining them, and then just feeling into what the connection is, the belonging. As Rumi describes it, lovers don't finally meet somewhere, they're in each other all along. Feeling how this being is a part of you. Dropping all ideas and just letting go into the sensations and experience of belonging. arises in awareness be included in this open-hearted space belonging to this moment and this one. A longing mind dwell within the depth of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Do not confine your innate infinity within the mansions of finitude. Your naked awareness alone, O oh mine, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately.